Let's open this morning to the book of Jude, verses 12 and 13. When you get there, you might want to put your finger there and then flip to 1 Corinthians 11 and put your finger there. Uh, We've got 10, so we can, you know, have lots of places to go. Jude, verses 12 and 13. And then we'll go to 1 Corinthians in just a moment. So let me pray. Lord, grant us today the power of your spirit to understand, to see from your word what it is that you have for us, what it is you call us to do, and how we are to live because of the truth that you have placed in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 12 and 13, and he's referring to the guys that we've been referring to throughout the book so far. These men are those who are hidden reefs. Now, if you have a, a translation that is uh, other than the one in the pew, you might get blemishes there, hidden reefs or blemishes. It's the same word, can be translated uh, both ways. There are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame-like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, uh, flip over now to to 1 Corinthians 11. Um, these, Jude is using these illustrations from nature to give us an understanding of the false teachers who have worked their way into the church and how they are being manifest in, in these concrete uh, illustrations from nature within the church. And there is a particular area within the church that Jude is very concerned about, and it is the love feasts. Now, love feasts would be historically... Um, as we'll see from, from 1 Corinthians, these were the things that took place prior to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And they really began kind of out of a cultural thing that they, they took and transformed it into a, a Christian thing. It was this gathering. Now, the problem that the Corinthians have, as we'll see, remember the Corinthians, they were, they were just you know, a few years removed from really rank paganism. I mean, they were very serious in their pagan activities, uh, very uh, licentious. I mean, they had the Temple of Aphrodite there. This church was just uh, just one step away from the pagan world that they had lived in previously. Okay, so it was easy to have that world come and infect them, or it was easy for them to slide back into some of their former practices. And so this is one of the areas that um, they were kind of having trouble uh, leaving uh, in their past lives. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now Paul is uh, uh, talking, uh, you know, in the beginning of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me because I'm an imitator of Christ. Do these things. And then he gets to verse 17 and says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Okay, you've got some issues here. So he says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Okay? So what he is saying here in, in the, to the church at Corinth is this is what was happening. People were supposed to really get together and, and share like, like a uh, first century potluck. Okay, they would all bring their food and they would have this meal together. In the midst of this meal, uh, if you came and you were um, looked downcast and you were sitting next to someone, their job was to, in a sense, put their arm around you and, and encourage you. If you came and had a struggle, they were there to pray for you. If you came and had a joy, you had a chance to share it. All of these things went on in the love feast and they would share their, their food together. And then they would have the Lord's Supper as a group. But what was happening here at Corinth is that uh, people were getting there early and the rich people were bringing their food and their wine and, and it had deteriorated into a very large party. Okay, And moved away from the uh, solemnness, the, the focus upon the sacrifice of the Lord and really fellowship in a godly way, had turned into fellowship in a worldly way. Now, we don't do this in, in today's church. Some places still do it. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it, it used to be in the old days. And when I say old days, it's, it's before, before me. So some of you, uh, that's your day. Um, uh, probably even before you. I, I don't know. Rob, did your dad ever have tokens? Did he ever talk to you about communion tokens? Okay. So it's even before Rob's dad, who was a Presbyterian pastor, okay? Now, there was something called communion tokens. And you could not take the Lord's Supper unless you had a communion token. And the way that you got a communion token was to come to the preparatory service on Saturday night. So you would come to the service on Saturday night and get your heart right. Okay, there would be a long time of confession and prayer and repentance and encouragement and singing and reading from the word. And when you left that service, you would have a token. So on Sunday morning, you could come to the communion service. And when you came forward to get the elements, you would give the pastor a token. Now, this, this is hard. I mean, okay, here you come. And you, you would come, if we did this, and you'd come up to me, and I'd put my hand out, expecting you to put a token in, and, and you say, oh, sorry, Rand, I couldn't make it. W- what was I to say? Well, in the old days, they would say, go and sit down. You do, you, your heart is not ready. It is not right to receive the Lord's Supper. Okay? So that's how serious it has been taken in the past. That if your heart was not right, and it was measured, the rightness of your heart was measured by your participation in the preparatory service on Saturday night. Now, I know some of you were in a preparatory service watching Auburn on Saturday night. Okay, <laughs> um, so uh, it was it was tough to be at the service. So, but it was serious. Now we don't we don't fight over the Lord's Supper like they used to. Now, I'm not going to call those the good old days. They were the days when they were working out 
what this meant. Okay, so in those days, when I talk about those days, we're talking the 16 and 1500s, they would get downright nasty about how you understood the Lord's Supper, where people would be beaten or burned at the stake if they had a different view or if they practiced it in a different way. Very difficult. I mean, those were days when when they were trying to figure out what this meant. Okay, is this really the body and blood? Does it actually turn into flesh and blood? Or is this just a symbol? Do we get together here and just remember? Or is there something actually happening here? Is Christ really present in these elements? That's what they were wrestling with. And, and those things did not come overnight. The answers did not come. They had to, uh, you know, it, it had to wrestle and struggle with an understanding of what this meant. So it was serious business. And here you have in the first century in Jude, you have this time where people would come together and, and prepare themselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And they were doing so by coming together and having a meal and encouraging someone and, and, and um, you know, praying for each other and really building this bond of the body of Christ so that when they got to the table, they were like this. And Jude says, you know, you've got to watch these people because some among you are not interested in building this bond. In reality, they want to tear that bond apart. So what we get from this is that people were coming to this love feast prior to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And they would sit down, and, and in, in, in fellowship, they'd begin to talk. And I'm kind of, kind of filling in the pieces here. And, and they would begin to talk to somebody else, and, and they would take that opportunity, these false teachers, to begin to teach their doctrine about things. You know... When you go and we have a, a meal over at the, the Cooper house and you sit down, you sit down with some people you don't know, you begin to talk and just interact. Well, these people took it as a time for subterfuge. They would come in and begin to plant errant beliefs and bad thoughts about things and wrong teachings, and, and it would filter in so that when people came to the Lord's Supper, their hearts really weren't right because they were, they were struggling with these things and they're, they're, they had these wrong views. Okay? So all of this is, is kind of a setup to these very basic and clear illustrations Okay, and we're going to go through them really quickly because it's very simply straightforward. Okay, now as um, uh, from First uh, Corinthians, turn all the way over to Ezekiel chapter thirty-four. Ezekiel thirty-four, right after Jeremiah, right before Daniel. Now, it says the first thing, they're blemishes or they're reefs. And we all have an understanding of what a reef is. Uh, a reef is something that's below the surface, is not always seen, or it would be like these rocks uh, that open the bottom of a ship. And, and they want to stay away from them, so often they would put up lighthouses, all those sailing things, to stay away from them. So Jude says these people are like these reefs, these rocks, which lay right underneath the water, that unless you know where they are, you don't see them. And if you drive your spiritual life on, on top of these people, they will tear you apart and, you'll, and they'll make shipwreck of your spiritual life. Okay, so that's the first real danger here. And, and, and Jude is very clear. These people have no fear. 
It's not as if they're coming in and, and, and tentatively trying to find out how to disrupt the life of the church. This is what they do. They pretty, pretty much don't care. And in fact, uh, they have no conscience about this. Peter says their consciences have been seared. It is not an issue for them to destroy. Okay? Now, most of us, you, you know, we think if, I'm, if, if something bad is going to happen or I might offend somebody, you know, we're, we're kind of hesitant to address it, so we want to address it in the right fashion. These people don't care. Okay? And their destruction has been sealed. We've seen that earlier. It's been sealed from long ago. But they have no conscience when it comes to this. In fact, their biggest concern is not how you're going to feel about it or what, what the outcome is going to be, whether it's going to build you up. They know it's not going to build you up. They're going to take you away from the truth. Their first consideration is what's in it for me. What is in it for me? And Ezekiel has this same problem. He warns the shepherds of Israel in the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. Verse 1 makes it very clear. So this is nothing new. This has been going on for quite some time. Ezekiel says in chapter 34, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. These were the teachers. These were the leaders. These were, the, in a sense, the pastors. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Now, we remember this, the illustration of, of what a shepherd does in, in the New Testament. There's a, the window that kind of gives us a concrete illustration of this. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, one sheep goes off, he leaves the 99, he goes and finds them. If he has one that continually goes off and runs away, what does he do? He goes and he finds that one, and literally he will break the leg of that lamb, set the leg of that lamb, and then carry that lamb around until that leg is healed. That lamb will never leave the shepherd. Okay, that lamb is so bonded to the shepherd at that point, he will never leave him. But that's what the shepherd is willing to do. Okay, but these shepherds, hey, they want to feed themselves. Verse 3, you eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. Okay. This was the warning that Ezekiel had, the Lord had through Ezekiel for the shepherds of Israel at old. This is the same type of warning that Jude is giving to the people that he is writing about, about these types of shepherds. They're not interested in your benefit, they're interested in their own benefit. False shepherds make sure that they have everything they need. They don't care about anybody else. So they are attempting to destroy the church by disrupting its morality, by disrupting its fellowship. They seek to glorify themselves. They don't seek to serve. Jude also says um, they are with clouds without rain. Now, if you have worked on a farm, planted a garden in your backyard and don't have irrigation, you have looked longingly at the sky at various times and seen the dark clouds and gone, oh, I hope that's going to rain. I hope that's going to rain. And then when those clouds go over and there's no rain, you are sadly disappointed. I remember we had friends in uh, Pennsylvania 
and they had one of those pick-your-own-farms, strawberries, berries, pumpkins, all kinds of things, and they had a building uh, with a tin roof, and you'd go into the building to buy some things, and it was typical Pennsylvania August uh, where lots of clouds would roll through, but no rain would come. But you're in the tin building, and all of a sudden, you'd hear this. And it would we go, is it raining? And it'd go, no, that's just the tin contracting and, and can, you know, getting bigger and smaller with the shade and the sun. And it was so disappointing because, you know, their ponds are getting lower, lower, lower. The ground is so dry. Jude says these people are clouds without rain. In Texas, it would be big hat. No cattle. Okay? That's what you get. All this expectation, nothing. They, they produce nothing. Okay? Proverbs 25 is very clear about this. Uh, they boast falsely. They have nothing to back it up with. So he says, don't get all excited about these guys. You know, Jude and I went to a, a dinner uh, in D.C. a few years ago. We were at some meetings down there, and we went to this really hip kind of restaurant just outside of D.C., and it, it's not... It was outside, so we thought, well, that would be nice. So we sit down, and, and Jude reads the menu, and there's this salad. It looks great, you know, on the menu. They bring it, and it's on a plate about this big and looks like stuff that came from our backyard. I mean, really, there, were, there was clover on it. There were the kind of sprouty things, twigs and stuff like that, and, and it was $12. And, and Jude ate it, and, you know, Judy, she was not satisfied. She was still hungry, and that, for Judy to be still hungry, you know how tall and thin she is. So we went down the street and had real dinner, okay, after that. But it was, it was this, the menu promised this great experience, and we left unsatisfied. That's what we get here. They are clouds without rain. Also, it says they are trees without fruit. Now, this refers to a tree, and it says that they're doubly dead. So... Not only do they not produce fruit, but they are good for nothing else. Now, Jesus makes it clear, uh, I think it's uh, Luke, about the fig tree. You remember, he comes across a fig tree, and it should be in fruit. There should uh, should be bearing fruit, and there's nothing there, and he curses it. Now, what we have here in Jude is that it is autumn, and they are looking for the fruit. I mean, uh, this is the time. If there's no fruit by the end of autumn, winter comes, and it's done. And the opportunity to get it is gone. Uh, We make it clear that what happens to trees that bear no fruit, Jesus is very clear. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. If you bear no fruit, you're of no use. And so here you have these trees. They're the teachers, but they're associated with the trees who should produce fruit, but they produce no fruit. And in fact, their roots are dead. They do not know Christ. They do. They are not associated with Christ. They talk about it, but they have no attachment to Him. So they are doubly dead. Next, uh, go to Isaiah fifty-seven. Isaiah fifty-seven. Just as, as before we get there, <clears throat> there are plenty of churches that are like that as well. 
They bear no fruit. But they have always been and they will always be until Christ returns. So I think it's very dependent upon us to, to remember when the Lord entrusts us with something, when he gives us gifts and abilities, we better use them for his glory. We better make sure that we are focused upon the building up of his kingdom, the things of Christ. How can I serve the person next to me? How can I encourage them? How can I challenge them to greater things in the faith? When they are in need, how can I put my arm around them and care for them? What about those outside the walls? They need to hear the gospel. They need to see the gospel. That is what we are called to do. I mean, if he blesses us, we better produce fruit. If we're not producing fruit, he's going to cut us down and throw us in the fire. Okay, so the next illustration is they are wild waves of the sea. Wild waves of the sea. Isaiah 57, verse 20. Remember, these are the false teachers. This is what they do. He's illustrating this, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. Refuse and mud. Now, if you've ever been to the beach after a storm, things wash up on the beach. Some things are natural, driftwood, shells, uh, the seaweed, those uh, ugly jellyfish or the crabs that are kind of flat with tails and things like that. They come and wash up. Then there are things that are not natural that wash up. Uh, now, I don't know if it happens down on the, on the Gulf Coast. Um, used to get it, uh, I can remember going to the East Coast and, and uh, Jersey and places like that, and every once in a while, stuff that was not so nice would wash up onto the coast. Uh, a lot of plastic bottles. Uh, I, I remember one year there were a bunch of medical things that washed up. Like uh, I can only guess that they were they were on a garbage barge or something and got washed over and they ended up there on the Jersey coast. I don't know what that says about Jersey, but uh, you, you know you work that out. Okay. So he says this is what happens when they get stirred up. They are like a sea that deposits things, and and Isaiah is very clear. They deposit refuse and mud nothing of value but they get all foamed up and they throw this stuff out and it really is not helpful it's this this foam this useless foam this flotsam all the stuff that comes up onto the beach that is not life-giving it is not encouraging it does not help the church it destroys the church it is this litter this junk that is thrown up here so they are evil. They commit this, this, these untamed, uh, vengeful acts within the church that look like, as the illustration is, refuse. And anybody standing, if you've been standing next to the sea and it, it hits a seawall or hits the pier and the big wave sprays up, what do you do? You usually go like this because you don't want to get wet if you're standing there in your clothes. This is the way the church should be. When these people stir things up, we should attempt to avoid them and get away from them because we don't want that flotsam all over us, right? Finally, they are wandering stars. Now, if you look in the sky, you can see stars which follow a pattern, right? There's only one star that doesn't move. That's the North Star. If you go out on my deck, it's, it's right over right over that tulip tree there. I've got it marked out. So I always know where north is. But all the other stars 
go. And if you've ever seen one of those pictures uh, that's time-lapse, that has all the stars moving in a circle, they move in a regular pattern. So when it says wandering stars, it doesn't actually mean one of those stars. The word really means a shooting star, okay, or a meteor, something, or a meteorite, something that flashes across the sky, and you see it, and what do you do? You go, ooh, ah, and then what? It's gone. Okay, it's only there for an instant. It's only there for a little bit. It is very, it catches your attention. It looks really cool, but it's gone in an instant. And he says, this is the way these people are. They're shiny, and, they, and you go, ooh, and awe about some of the things that they have to say, but their teaching is only there for an instant. It is gone. It is not something that stands the test of time. It's flashy, but it's erratic. It's streaking across the sky, but it's there, and it's gone. True stars don't wander. True stars don't flash across the sky. They are there all the time. Whether you see them or not, the stars are there. They are ever-present. So, hence the Bible in Daniel chapter 12 refers to believers, God's people, as the stars that will shine forever. False teachers make a big splash, a big flash. They burn out just like a shooting star. And, and the word for wander here in, in the Greek, in Jude, has the same root as the word error. Not only are they wandering stars, they are stars that are in error. Now, they flash across the sky. So the ones that you see today may not be the ones that you see five or ten years from now within, within the church, within these circles. They appear for a little bit, but they're gone. And Jude makes it clear that their destiny is very bad. It is the blackest darkness. That's what he says about these false teachers. So go back to Jude. We'll check that out. Just Blackest darkness has been reserved for them forever. These false teachers who say that God is something other than what he has revealed himself to be, that Christ is not the Son of God, not born of a virgin, that the Bible is not the Word of God, that salvation is by works rather than by God's actions and his grace, These are people who attach themselves to the church, who try to fill minds with the false things. Paul warns us of that in Acts 20. He says, For I know this, that after my departing shall come grievous wolves entering among you, not sparing the flock. Okay? They want to come. They want to consume. You have to be ready for these people. Ready for these people. So we have to take the warnings of Jude to heart. They can serve preventative, that we're on the lookout for these types of things, but also that in our own hearts, that we don't wander away, that we aren't uprooted or taken away from the word or latch on to some error, especially as the application here is when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that our hearts are right, that we are not focused upon something other than the Lord's Supper. We had a service at a church in Pennsylvania, and it was in the fellowship hall, and it was going to be a meal and a little bit of worship and the Lord's Supper. And so it was, it was, it was great. And then we, we did the, the meal, lots of fellowship, good time, drew us together. We had a little bit of worship, singing, uh, read from the Word, a little exposition of the Word. And then we went to the Lord's Supper, and the guy said, okay, now everybody, we're going to start over here, just form a line, and we'll come around and take the Lord's Supper. 
We were in the line about two minutes when I noticed that people, in a sense, had reverted back to the fellowship of the table, and they started to talk and started to laugh, and it was, it became very relaxed, and as, as Jude and I are standing there, I'm thinking, ah, I'm just not sure this is, this is what it, what we're to do, we're to fellowship at the table, uh, you know, as we eat, but as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we, we've got to be focused and, and, and right, and, and we stood in line for about 15 minutes, and it just was, you know, some of the loudest 15 minutes I'd ever spent in the in the church before. And when we got to the Lord's table, I, I my heart wasn't right. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't ready to 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 receive the Lord's supper. But it, it was one of those things I just didn't quite understand it, so I didn't know what to do. So I went ahead and did it. But it was over the years I, I've reflected on it, and and it's kind of disturbing that those things can disturb our focus as we come to the Lord's table. Okay? This is bread, and this is juice, but it is yet so much more. Okay? It is the real presence of Christ. He never leaves the right hand of the Father, but yet he is present here in this room, right this table. We never leave this room, yet we are taken right to the throne of God, right there in front of him by the work of Christ. It's one of those things... In theology, when I can't explain it any better, we just simply call it a mystery. That's what it is. It's a mystery. But yet it is very real. And it is dependent upon us to make sure that our hearts are right, that our focus is upon Christ and his sacrifice for us before we come to the table. So let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have made a way for us, a way that is paved by the work of Christ, his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And because of his work, we might come to the table, we might know your grace it might permeate our lives cleanse us of the sin that separates us that we might be reconciled to you but as believers lord we also have to know that this is not something that we take for granted it is not a magic potion it is a time of examination a time of confession of our own sin a time of repentance that we would turn from that sin so lord in these moments as we sing and as we pray And as we prepare for the table, I ask that you would come, that you would open the eyes of each of us, open our hearts, that we might understand the depth of the love that you have for us, the depth of the sacrifice of Christ, that we would honestly and openly examine our own hearts and know the offense that sin is to you, but also know your promise that your grace is more than sufficient to cover those sins, that your love for us is deeper than anything that we can understand, and that it is in Christ that we might find wholeness and healing. We ask this in his name. Amen.